Hello, Caroline. Hi, Rahul. How are uh, you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, fine. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I wanted to... Uh, one question I always ask every... Have you given lectures? By Have you taught lectures? Because well, about careers, yes. About careers, yes. Not uh, any other topic. So your field of expertise is mainly careers. Yeah, it is. And you never give a lecture on any other topic? Um, I mean, I used to teach a sort of... Uh, the University of Sydney, uh, but that was helping recently arrived uh, PhD researchers who were looking for work. So it was still employability related, but it was a bit more about the context of the society they were living in and things like that. So I'd say everything has had an employability focus. So where were you? Uh, let's go back. So where were you born? I was born in London. Um, and yeah, I grew up there till I was 18, then went off to uni. Um, really wanted to travel, so I did a languages degree. And then, Where did you go to uni? Um, I went to Sussex. Oh, okay. So I studied French and Italian and European studies there. Um, I had my year abroad in Paris um, and spent time also in Bologna. Yeah. And then, yeah, I graduated, had no idea what I wanted to do, which I always find ironic, seeing as now I'm a careers advisor. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just knew I wanted to travel, really. So I, yeah, started traveling. So... Went to Japan, taught English there for a while. Uh, then I went to Australia and taught English there. I had an amazing job, both at the University of Sydney and then up in Cairns, where my job was to teach English in the week and then go diving with the students on the weekend in it the Barrier Reef. In oh, wow. Yeah, that so that awesome. was amazing. So that was like an amazing job. So really lovely. You know, I was 23 at the time, so pretty similar age to the students I was teaching. So they were really my friends. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it was great. So it was very international cohort, just like in Bath. So really enjoyed that time. So a bit... Um how did uh, so you uh, like studied uh, in, you were born in London, you went to Sussex and uh, you, you studied uh, French and Italian? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how many languages do you know? Well, um, I think I know quite a lot of languages badly. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So basically, um, after I graduated, I ended up living abroad for 14 years. So we um, moved around quite a lot. So after Australia, we lived in Hungary. Uh, then we lived in Czech Republic, Beirut, Trinidad and Tobago, Slovenia, Czech Republic. So I think in every country I got to say wow. enough to survive, let's say. Um, but yeah, some languages like Slovenian or Hungarian are pretty obscure and they're not <laughs> something that I get a chance to practice much. But um, so, yeah, I guess French, Italian, German, I think those are probably my strongest languages. Wow, and English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, this is a lot of traveling. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I want to know everything. Okay, so, um, okay, you first started off with uh, you went to Australia. Yeah. Well, first to Japan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't even remember. But yes. Um, no. First, I went to Japan. Okay. Then from Japan to Australia. Um, How was Japan? Yeah, lovely. I was in a very small city called Tsukuba where they moved all the government research oh, labs. Sukuba, I know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah? They moved all the government research labs out there. So lots of the other foreigners were doing uh, postdocs in science. Um, and I just graduated from a language degree. So I think I was a bit sort of like, okay, this is an interesting uh-huh. group of people. Do you know Japanese? Um, well, we learned a bit. Um, <laughs> but actually, I met my husband there. So he was doing research. Um, oh, he's and from... Uh, he's English, English, but he okay. was doing um, a postdoc there. So... 
Um, and how yeah. old were you when you met? Them? Yeah, so um, 23, I guess. We didn't get married straight away. Ah, we got married when I was 28. But, oh, but we yeah. met in 20. Okay, yeah. great. So, um, so yeah, in fact, we met lots of really close friends from that time in Japan. I think it's one of those very intense situations where everything's quite different. Um, the language, the culture, the way of living. So it really meant that you kind of formed friendships very, very quickly. Yeah. I guess a bit like, you know, for the international students coming to Bath, it's a very intense experience. So I think you really form great friendships there. And in fact, two of our friends that we met in Japan also married each other and they're uh -huh. coming to stay with us uh, next weekend. Oh, wow. So yeah, they live in Holland, but yeah, so it was a very international experience and I loved that international experience. And I think if we think about sort of my life, I think I've done different things at different times, but it's always had that sort of working with young people, working with sort of international people um, and sort of thinking about development and next steps and, you know, helping people get to where they want to be. Yeah, I don't think I realized that at the time when I was living in Japan teaching English, but definitely, you know, having good language skills Helps, was important. Yeah. yeah. After Australia, I went to live in Hungary and that was um, just in the early 90s. So just after sort of the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, all the um, former communist countries were having uh, lots of political changes then so it was a very exciting time to be living in Hungary and you really saw changes to how people were living when we first arrived there it was very hard to get fruit and vegetables or tins of tomatoes you know it was still, yeah wow. well early Ironic. 90s you know it just didn't have that sort of infrastructure yet it wasn't wow. a kind of free market economy as it were so and we really saw those changes from 93 to 95 um, uh, and in fact we we did go off then to the Caribbean for a short stint, but we did come back to sort of Central Europe, um, to the Czech Republic and lived in Prague. Um, and I think that was much more developed by then. But I went back to university after living in Hungary and thought I was really interested in the changes that were happening in those countries. So I actually did a master's in economics. Um, I started in Hungary and I finished it in the Caribbean. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was very interesting for me. And I think at the time I was like, okay, I really want to get involved with these changes. The EU was investing a lot into lots of different aid programs to help them develop infrastructure, that kind of thing. So I worked for the EU's aid program to Eastern Europe for a while. And then when we came back to the UK, so that was in 2003, I had two children by then. Um, <laughs> Oh, so you're it, traveling with the children? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, not so much. Only Beirut and Slovenia with them. But um, we came back and um, the first job I got here was again working for the European Union's uh, social fund that program. That was in London? That was based out of Bath. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was really lucky. So it was supporting um, NGOs in the southwest that wanted to access EU funding to help their projects for underprivileged groups. So working a lot with organizations that were trying to get unemployed people into employment. So that was oh, really that's interesting. That's how it started off. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, then, um, and then from there came to the uni and actually then worked in the students' union for a while. You worked in the SU? Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So worked here. I think we were a bit unsure when we first moved to Bath. I'd never been to Bath before I moved here. Um, so it was uh -huh. a bit random coming here. 
but uh, we came and I thought, oh, we'll probably manage two years because before that we'd been moving every year and a half or two years. And I thought, oh, it's not London. Uh, maybe it's too quiet. Uh -huh. But actually, we just loved it. And I think it's got a great combination. You can be in the centre of London in an hour and a half. You've got the countryside, you've got the beach, uh, you've got the hills. Um, so it's been a great place to live as a family. Um, and I yeah. fully agree with this because, you know, when I came here first, okay, and I was just looking around. Okay, so just before coming to Bath, I spent you know, three, four days in London. And I had come to London earlier when I came before summer school. I did LSE summer school uh, in London, and uh, it was it was great, man. And I was like, you can imagine, I was younger then. I was like eighteen, so I was like, oh my god, yeah, party, lifestyle, drinking, and stuff like that, and and music. So I thought London was a great place. Okay, then I became twenty one. I became more more mature, let's say. <laughs> and I came here, but as soon as I came here, I was like, this is a little too quiet. Like I know I was fully aware before coming here that it would be quiet. And I'm like, this is a little too quiet. Uh, like spending a little more time here. And two, three months later, and now, oh, I love it. Hmm. I absolutely love it. I love it more than London. Yeah. Because now when I go to London, it's too loud and it's... Yeah. I'm sure you agree with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a very conscious decision of us when we came back to the UK to move out of London. Because I think London's great if you have lots of money... Um, yeah. And lots of time. And I guess with two small children, we weren't really going to have either of those no things. Yeah. Uh, we'd spend a lot of time commuting. And we just realized in Bath, you know, we could have a much higher standard of living. There was loads for the children to get involved with, uh, loads for us to do. You still have theatre. You've still got Bristol that's only 10 minutes away, which has got, you know, it's more of a city feel. The shops are great in Bath. Um, so, so yeah, so we haven't really missed it at all. Um, and it's great, you know, because if we do want to go to London, we can and it's easy. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, true. So, yeah, so it's, yeah, it was definitely a great decision coming back <laughs> here. Okay, so let's go back. Um, you came to Bath and that's when working with NGOs, the careers started. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what, and then you came here and started working in SU. Yep. So, so what went on from then? Yeah, so in the Students' Union, I got involved with their skills programme. So that was working sort of in a university role or student union role, supporting students from of all year groups, all faculties. Um, so I started working with companies who were running skill sessions on team working or something career related. Um, and that was really interesting. And we did loads of good stuff doing that. And then there was a job that came up in the placements team in the School of Management and that was supporting master students where we had a program that was six month study and six month placement. So I sourced the placements for that program and that was really good because I got to do exactly what I love, which is working with young international people, working with companies and sort of helping students to find you know, their place in the world really. So that was great. Um, and then from that, at that time, we only had two other master's programs, the MSc oh. Management and the MSc Accounting and Finance. Just two? Yeah. And in MSc Management? students. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So it was quite small. So um, I worked four days a week with my placement students and I worked one day a week with the other master's students. Okay. And, and then that one day a week job grew to a full-time job. Um, so <laughs> then I moved to that role, supporting all the MSc students with their career development. And that time there were just 200? Yep, them. so there were 200 to start with. Well, actually, by the time I started in that role, I think we had the MSc International Management. And then after that, the following year, the MSc Marketing, MSc HRM started. So 
pretty quickly the portfolio built up. Yeah, from two it went to now how many ever? Yeah, how many? well, there 40, are 13 programs. Yeah. Okay, 14. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 13. 13, okay. well, if you count EBM, there's 14. So, it's yeah. only in MSC um, management and uh, it's only MSC management that has 14 programs. Oh, in the School of Management. Oh, in the School of Management. There are 14 MSc courses. Okay, yeah. Like, you must have seen the university change so much. Yeah. Like, oh, it's yeah. 12 years now. So, yeah. yeah, can you tell me more about it's that? It's so surprising. Whenever <laughs> it's we have... a big grin on your face yeah. now. <laughs> well, whenever we have alumni come back, they're like, oh my goodness. You know, they don't recognize <laughs> everything. I must say, there did used to be a lot more green spaces on campus than there are now. It just, yeah. So, there's so much more student accommodation. We didn't have Lime Tree. We didn't have The Edge. We didn't have Chancellor's Building. Wow. We didn't have the Sports Training Village. So, oh. yeah, I mean, it's incredible how it's grown. So if you think about the parade, that was really... The only thing there. Yeah, that was the core bit of the university. There was some student accommodation, but nothing like what we have now. Yeah. So it's really grown And incredibly. then the new building. Yeah, and the new School of Management building, of yeah. course. So <laughs> very exciting times. Will you be so, working yeah. there? I will be, yeah. Oh, nice. So that'll be nice, everyone back together again. So When I when I come back as an alumni, I'll come to you yeah. and I'll be like, whoa, then I'll be the one being whoa. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's going to be really exciting. And I'm sure there are going to be lots of events planned for our alumni to come back and see what an amazing space it's going to be. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so, like, oh, yeah, so every single year, would you say the University of Bath has only been growing? Uh, in terms of monetary gains also, in terms of uh, the faculty, in terms of the university, everything. Yeah. Is that true? Yes, I think definitely. Um, and I think especially with the postgrad courses, um, we've seen a lot of growth there. So, uh, especially in the School of Management, but more generally now, now, I think, throughout the whole university. So, yeah, there's definitely this move to um, enhance our student experience for the MSc students as well, which is great. So we've seen a lot more resource go into that area. So when I started, it was you know me working one day a week. Now we've got three people working with the MSc students just on the careers side. You, Naomi, and Jane. Jane. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. And um, the student experience officers, you know, started off with one. Now there are three. The global residencies didn't used to happen, now they do. So I think, you know, there's a lot more attention to making sure that when students are with us for such a short time, we need to make sure that... They have a great time. Yeah, and that it's very easy to access. Because obviously the student union is amazing and lots of stuff that we organise, like volunteering opportunities, um, company presentations, those are organised centrally. But it's quite hard to, you know, as a new student, to get to grips with everything that's going on because there's so much going on. So I think the real aim has been to try and sort of integrate the sort of international opportunities, the corporate engagement, um, careers, sort of social events, really into the MSc programme for our students so that it's easy for them. Because it's hard enough, right, in a year working out where you buy your food and how you set up a bank account and how you access the buses, you know, without having to worry about all the extracurricular stuff we want you to do too. Were you very hands-on with um, the MSc program changes? Yeah, I guess um, the program used to be, you know, there used to be a much smaller group of people working with them. So it was definitely quite easy a few years ago to influence decisions because there was a small team of people making those decisions. I'd say the school has grown incredibly on the academic side 
and on the professional so- yeah. services side, you know, you know, it's nice because I feel like I've sort of grown with the school. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so it's great, you know. I, th- I hope our students find that it's a really friendly place where we still know you as individuals and that we really do take on board feedback we get. You know, we're constantly trying to enhance the experience and what, what our students want. And I think we're still small enough that if students come to us with a, an idea for improving things, we can react to it. Mm. So, yeah. And okay, so um, I I don't I don't know uh, like I don't know who to ask this. Okay, so there was uh, there's a partner of mine who has her own uh, company of like let's say it's um like she uh, the food, and it's uh, like very vegan friendly or something. Ah, okay. Now, if I wanted like that um to have a place in uh, the university. Who do I talk to? Well, I guess then you'd be talking to our people who deal with our catering. I think they're based in Six East, or they used to be. So I think, um, obviously, we have the vegan cafe now on campus. Yeah, I know. So I don't know if they'll see that as competition. But certainly for external events, um, you know, sometimes we get external caterers in to run events for us. Um, so I guess the main thing is getting them added to the university payment system so that we can pay them. And that is a certain sort of admin okay, heavy goes task. Like yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, I was checking everywhere, like while applying to places. It said Bath, uh, Bath was obviously uh, like uh, in marketing, it was number one. Mm. You must have seen like the marketing grow. How, yeah. how, how was marketing? So yeah, oh, I, my goodness. Yeah, and next year, I think it's going that. to be really big, isn't it? Yeah, I think can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess... Actually, even when we started the program, I think we had about 50 or 60 students on it. So it's always That's been lot, yeah. yeah, that sort of size. And I guess its reputation has just grown and grown. And I must say, having sat in on some of the practice track company presentations, which have been marketing oriented. Yeah, you were there for us. Yeah, yeah, I can really see how you're adding value to those companies. You know, sometimes with the more generic projects, it's like, OK, sometimes the proposals seem quite common sense. But marketing really have some sort of specific skills and knowledge that the average person working for a company doesn't have yeah it's different maybe if you're working for a specialist marketing agency but for the example that we were working together on that Accor Hotel one Francis Hotel Francis Hotel you know you had insights that they wouldn't otherwise have and that really made me proud of what you've learnt during the year you know your e-marketing course and stuff like that it seems really that's always our thing isn't it Research intensive, practice driven. So having that yeah. way of learning the theories, but how do we implement, implement these? Them. And you know, it's really satisfying to see you know our students be able to give their knowledge and their understanding of how things work. Um, I know sometimes uh, some companies. Last year when we were working with Mars, for instance, they were like, "Oh, only X percent are looking at our Facebook page," and actually that was a really high percentage, but. For them, it felt low, but I oh. think it's just understanding the context of actually in that sort of social media marketing, that was a high percentage. And I think it's just having that understanding. That's really something that we are benefiting. Yeah, I remember. Companies. I know. I remember this when um, the Accor Hotel were there and we told them that only uh, seven or eight percent of Chinese people actually have passports. Mm. They're like, whoa. <laughs> They're yeah. like, I- I'm expecting a lot from that. Yeah. And I, 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 I always thought that these... Um, uh, like uh, companies and having the presentations was um, I wouldn't say a formality I would say that yeah, yeah, they want us to do some research but these are big companies here and uh, I used to think that like obviously like I think it's more of a test like obviously if they find something they'll use it it's nothing that they can't find themselves 
But now they're telling me that all these companies that throughout the years came and they actually benefited through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so many have said to us that, you know, because Naomi follows up afterwards with their feedback. So although that's not part of the academic uh, marking process, that's with your academic, that she gets the company feedback. And so many have said, we're taking this to board, wow. you know, we're going to be using this information. I think it's just, it is that external view, right? So it's the kind of sense check on the one hand. On the other hand, you're often the demographic they're trying to target. So that's really useful for them to hear sort of direct from the horse's mouth, as it were, what, what you think. Um, but yeah, and then having the sort of data and having clever people spend three and a half weeks working pretty solidly on their challenge yeah. really help you know it's just a resource they just don't have time to do often it just never gets to the top of the pile so it's just like they just give up what half a day coming onto campus and half a day for the presentations and they get all this really they interesting get all this, yeah. information uh, can I ask you something why can't one of the students uh, like one of the like co-students or leaders or whatever go with the company to pitch this to the board that'll be a lot of good yeah. experience why, yeah. why can't that happen it can happen. And I guess it's just, you know, making sure that we have the right people knowing that it's possible. But the people do know it's possible. When NEMI feeds back, if they want that to happen. So it has can. happened before? I don't know if it has happened before. I think maybe people in the companies like to know that or like to present it maybe as their initiative. I don't know. Oh. But it certainly is possible. So we certainly wouldn't stop them if they wanted that to happen. And we recognize that would be an amazing opportunity for us. I would, I would just say that if any, um, like every year, I'm sure there's one presentation that mm. will, like, I, I would say blow their minds away. Mm. Uh, and even like, just like maybe pitch it to them, like, if you want, any one of these students can come with you all mm. in the board and present and, off, off and research with you all and offer insights. Because mm. I also really enjoy presenting. And if I got an opportunity in front of a board, I know I'll be nervous, but it'll be, it'll be a learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so you were saying that uh, throughout the years, you must have, you've seen the uni change as much. Uh, how, uh, how, like how old is the uni? It's more than 50, right? Yeah, so we had our 50th anniversary a couple of years ago. Okay. So yeah. we had lots of celebrations then. And I think it's grown as well. So I think it started very much as a sort of technical university and it's really grown into, okay, it's not a, doesn't offer all subjects, but it's definitely more varied now. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Okay, over the years, like almost 12 years now, like more than 12. So you mm-hmm. must have come across a lot of different students. Yeah. Okay, any particular ones that come to mind? Like some, yeah. I'm sure a lot of students have done some crazy stuff that you know about. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't say that I remember something really crazy that they did. I'd say one thing that really differentiates the MSc students, though, is just how lovely and friendly and appreciative they are of their experience at Bath. I think some groups of students, you know, are quite demanding. But on the whole, I'd say the MSc students are really pleasant and lovely to work with. So I don't know if there's anything particularly unusual or hilarious that our students have done. <laughs> so, sorry, can't think of that right now. Okay, no problem. Um, and yeah, so now working in careers. Uh, uh, this is your, like your core, your bread and butter. This is uh, careers. Uh, you ha- have you seen like what is the conversion rate for students to get jobs after graduating from Bath? Is mm. it th- and you're not in you're not in undergrad in any way, right? No, oh, it's only postgrad. So yeah. yeah. So what is the conversion rate? So um, it's hard. Our students are very 
spread geographically. So often it's just hard knowing what our students are doing after graduation. Um, but we have a great alumni team um, who try and reach out to everyone to find out what everyone's doing after graduation. And it varies year by year and program by program. Um, usually we report that information. So some years, some courses, it will be 100% of the cohort is working after graduation. Uh, some years it might not be quite so good. So obviously it really varies what kind of roles the students are looking for. Some students will be going back to family businesses, might yeah. be starting up their own business. Yeah. Some students are going on to further study. So it does vary. But I think um, the main sort of message, I guess, is that we want to stay in touch with people as they graduate. I think we're really trying to do more now with our alumni, so keeping in touch with them. So I think the uh, in China we have quite regular trips now, um, and I think we just want to expand that international reach so that we're really yeah. staying in touch with our alumni because, you know, you're our best ambassadors hmm. and we want to support you. You know, I think often careers are a stepping stone. You may not get exactly the perfect job straight after university, but it's just trying to really reflect and think about what you've achieved, what you enjoyed, what you think you're good at, and then making the next strategic move to think about, okay, where can I go next? So that step by step, you're reaching kind of your mm. perfect role. Yeah. Um, and that will change over time as well, of course. And as society change or the world of work changes, you know, your priorities might change too. Yeah. So, um, so I think, yeah, we just really want to stay in touch with our alumni and make sure that, yeah, the first job is great, but make sure that we stay in touch so that we can really help if we can in the future as well. So if you're worried after two years, okay, what's the next strategic move I can make, then we can support you with that as well. Okay. So, like, you know, being in careers for this long, how do you think um, recruiters, recruiters' minds and their way of recruiting and hiring people has changed or mm. evolved? Yeah. I think it's more different now because before it was, I, I don't know if it's true, before it was more um, results-based. And now yeah. it's a little more attitude uh, yeah. and uh, Values, what you can offer, yeah. value-based. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, so um, I think it does vary by country and I think different countries' grades are more or less important. But certainly in the UK, if we look at the UK and how that's changed over the last, say, 15 years, I think the application process is, is using technology much, much more. So if you think now you apply online, the computer will do a kind of quick sift. Wait, it, so before, how did people apply? When you'd you send there? a CV and a cover letter. letter and you'd get an interview. Through a letter? Yeah. And it was always interviews? Yeah. There was it was no very rejection. straightforward. You know, well, ah, sure, easier well, times. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, and some companies still work like that. But yeah, you know, it tends to be that we'll try and get as broad, uh, as many people as possible applying for roles. Then it will be the online tests. Then it will be, you know, a digital interview. So it's not even a Skype interview. This is a vid an interview where the questions pop up on the screen and you have three minutes to answer oh, them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, you're still not engaging with a person. Obviously, someone at the other end will be reviewing those interviews and then from that will shortlist. So really, it's at the assessment center stage that you're actually meeting people. Um, so that's changed. I think the whole use of technology to handle the application process. Um, and there's a lot of talk now about using AI to actually do the interview screening as well. So rather than the person watching the interviews, 
the computer will just work out who gets okay. through to the next stage. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, you know, so that's, I guess, been the major change as with, you know, our society generally, the role of technology has really increased. Um, but the range of opportunities has also increased. And I think the range of opportunities open to graduates has really changed, you know. Yeah. There's a lot you can do. I think in the UK, lots of sort of more techie roles are also open people to people with quite general degrees. Um, you don't need to have a relevant degree often. And I think that's, again, what differentiates the UK market from other countries okay so like they can hire anyone like, yeah oh. so you know you can work in technology consulting if you've got a degree in marketing let's say or you can work in operations and supply chain if you've got a degree in management because as you said it's much more about your skills and your attitude and values and i think that's the other big change is that employers are really checking for a sort of match with culture right at the start so it used to be you'd go through the application process can you do the job and then the final stage it would be, okay, do you fit in? Now they're really checking right from the beginning. Do you fit in with our organisation? Will you be happy here? Right? So it's a two-way thing. Okay. Will you work well in our organisation? Because that will make you happier and fulfilled. So I think that's an mm. interesting change yeah. too. I think sometimes that's frustrating for students because they feel like they're not getting any feedback. They'll apply, do some tests and be rejected. But actually it's much quicker and easier to get the sort of news at that stage rather than spending a lot of time doing interviewing and preparation for assessment centres only to find out that actually you're not a good culture fit anyway. So I know it seems harsh, but I think oh, that yeah. is, um, you know, an interesting direction okay. that companies have taken, yeah. Okay, let's see this. You must have taken interviews or you must have been there and observed it. How do you, let's start from the top, okay, now how do you, uh, how do you ace the interview? If that's you yeah. get one. Okay, so I think the main thing is that you have to research the company you're applying for. So this doesn't mean just repeating their website. I think it's really reflecting what you found out about the company and reflecting that in your own personal values and aspirations. So if you know that a company has lots of training opportunities, then it's relating it to some, you know, training that you've taken part in, something that you think is really important to you. If a company encourages its... Uh, graduates to take part in volunteering activities and that's something you've done a lot of and is important to you then it's really reflecting that back so saying look here's the match so you're basically showing how what the company has to offer is a match to what you are looking for and okay. what you value I understand this like the research you do uh, what, like you see where the comp like is it um, where like you research where the company is lacking and then you tell them in interview... Um, no, no, it's not really so much what they're lacking, but okay. it's like um, if, I don't know, like Mars is a family-owned business okay. um, and their values are really important. On every toilet you go to, their values are printed on the door. So <laughs> freedom, mutuality, I can't remember what they all are. But it's really important that everyone in the company works and acts as in accordance with their values oh. if you were the person if you were a kind of a super competitive person then mars might not be the right place for you so you're really trying to think about or another example would be unilever has a 2020 sustainability goal so you know if sustainability is really important to you then that would be you know you'd want to have that kind of narrative going through your application you know i'm applying to you because and it's not something i can say about your competitors it's something that's really specific to you 
Ah, I, I understand this more. Okay. So I always yeah. say that you know, job search is a bit like dating, right? <laughs> so you know, you're looking for the perfect match, and when you meet someone, you wouldn't just say, "Oh, I'm looking for a girlfriend or a boyfriend." You'd say, "I'm looking for someone who, you know, enjoys this, values that." And it's the same with a company. Yeah, you're looking for a company that you'll be happy to work at and proud to work at, because the companies are, I think, it's expensive for them to recruit people and to train people so that you know you can add value for them. So they obviously want you to stay as long as possible. I think everyone knows you're going to change at some point, probably, but they want to minimise the risk that you're going to be unhappy in the role or not able to work well. So they want to see in your application that you really understand who they are. Just like if you were looking for a life partner, <laughs> you know, you want to show the match. You like walking, I like walking. You know, you like reading, I like reading. And it's sort of like it that. Like that yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, trying to understand what the company really stands for, what the role really does, and how that's a match with what you are good at and what you enjoy doing then I think the risk that they take you on board and you leave after six months is much smaller then because they know that you really understand their organisation. That's why so many companies like students who've done a placement with them because it's kind of a test before they recruit you. Before, oh, yeah. Yeah, so you yeah. can work with them on an internship and then they'll see in practice, you know, do you fit in? Do you, do you work the way the other people in the teams work? Do you have similar mindset? You know, do people enjoy working with you and do you enjoy working with them? And yeah. are you good at what you're doing? This, this I understand because now if I, am, if I have a very ethical nature, I'm not going to go and apply to a company like Nestle or Apple. Mm. I'm not. But if I have a super competitive nature that I will do whatever to go on top, mm. it's more likely that Apple or Nestle is going to hire me. Mm-hmm. And if I have an ethical nature and I work within boundaries, maybe a company like Ben & Jerry's or Ann Summers uh, or even Mars, they are like family friendly. They will, they will be more likely to hire you. So I understand that research on the company is very yeah. important. And based on yeah. their attitudes, you Yeah. So, and I think, so going back to your question about, you know, how do you ace the interview? I guess it's, um, yeah, understanding what it is they're looking for and demonstrating it, right? So being prepared doing some research on, you know, what if, if the job description is talking about project management or being innovative, then it's having examples that you can draw on so you can, mm. you know, give evidence that you've done those kind of things before. Okay, yeah, that, that's more insight, yeah. Um, yeah, and obviously be on time and dress well. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, sometimes the uh, feedback we get from recruiters is, you know, students are answering phones during an interview. Ooh. So obviously, yeah, we wouldn't be doing anything like that. Um, and yeah, I think dressing, again, to fit the culture of the company. So some tech companies or startups wouldn't necessarily be expecting you to work, arrive in a suit. Um, I think you should always probably be a bit more formally dressed than the people yeah, who are I interviewing yep. you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're trying to show that you fit with the company culture, right? Now, how do you ace or how do you build the perfect CV? Yeah. So again, it's a similar story, really. It's, it does have to be tailored for each company and Wait, each every, role. Yeah, you know, every okay. CV has to be different. Yeah, oh. that's right. Because obviously you're the same, but what you want to highlight to different mm. companies is different, okay. right? So if, if a company you know, is really focused on sustainability, 
um, and you've done a project on sustainability, then that's going to be more important to, than to a company which doesn't care so much about sustainability, but maybe is more interested, I don't know, in your HR experience because you're doing a rotation in HR. So you're trying to show them each time you're picking out the bits that are most relevant for, for that role in that company. So you're the same, but what you're highlighting is different. So, you know, and there are certain tricks you can do because obviously a CV is meant to have certain sections in it and you're meant to stay in reverse chronological order, so the most recent first, but you can change the section headings so that you can really highlight certain key yeah. activities. Supposing it's an advertisement agency and I did an advertisement internship uh, a couple of years ago. It's mm-hmm. not my most recent work. I, I should yeah. put that on top, right? Yeah, so, and, and so what I'd have maybe is relevant experience yeah. and maybe you'd put like your practice track project and the advertising or you might say marketing experience and then you can have those two first and then you can have other work experience, another section where you list all the other things that are good for generic skills but not relevant um, so much in what you actually did. When I met with Naomi, uh, she said that... Uh, like in supposing LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn they say when you have to hire, they say skills required, and if these skills match whatever uh, your the skills that you have, you uh, write below experience, you write skills learned, and yeah. then give real life examples of you using these skills to solve problems. Yeah, that's certainly true. I think the problem we have with um, skills is that quite often it's quite generic. Um, yeah. You know, companies will ask for teamwork or interpersonal communication or skills. Analytical, yeah. And, you know, basically most students can have examples yeah. of that. So really, I think um, taking it to the next level is really thinking about, okay, when have I done the tasks that I will do in the job I'm applying for and really trying to show that. So if, for instance, you're applying for a marketing role and they want someone who's got some experience of... Uh, I don't know, e-marketing, social media campaigns, pay-per-click, something like that, that you've got that listed in your CV so that you can really see, show that you've done what the role will be. Okay. Yeah. So, so then it's huh. like, again, that risk, you know, will this person be able to do the job? You're basically showing them you've already done the job. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long should the CV be? Yeah. Again, so it varies. I think it varies quite a lot by country. Um, And by the kind of role you're applying for. So in the UK, generally we say one page for banking, two pages for other types of roles. But if, for instance, you don't have much work experience, it might be better to have one sort of full page than sort of trying to have a page and a half, no, well, a page and a half or something. So, you know, in the UK, extracurricular activities are really valued by employers. So, again, you know, we would hope that all our MSc students have done something extracurricular during their time here so they could um, highlight those experiences as well and certainly talk yeah, you about are part the, of my... yeah, part of the <laughs> generic experiences that you can show and mm. it's up to you to draw out what you gain from it and to show the employer how this will add value to them. Okay. Um and okay, so going like uh, if the CV is one and a half pages, you you would say no. Yeah, so I guess you just try and see. You know, you might add referees. Um, you might add in some projects. So you'd probably try and get it to one page or two pages. Okay. And sometimes there are different, you know, different roles. You might have different formats as well. You might have a profile at the top of a CV if you're really trying to highlight something that maybe is lower down 
in your CV. It might be some extracurricular activities that are really important for that company. Um, so, yeah, I'd say, you know, one page and two thirds is probably okay, but one and a bit doesn't look yeah, good. That yeah, that doesn't look good. Okay, I understand. Um, uh, the, I keep, like, I'm sure you've seen, like, uh, these ads and uh, this, these people using, uh, like, in on Pinterest, you must have seen these very creative CVs where they are making mm. it fancy looking and stuff. Does it really matter? Okay, so that's a really good question. And I guess most years we have, we advertise a job with Innocent and I'll see our marketing students get very creative with those. And I think, again, you're trying to match your application to the company. Um, and, you know, Innocent's quite a cool and funky company. So having quite a creative CV for them might make sense. To be honest, lots of companies, you're not even applying with a CV. You'd just be applying with a, an online application. But yeah, I think. Yeah. So the main thing I've noticed when students have very creative CVs is sometimes it's like structure over content. So sometimes it's quite hard to find the information that employers need to find quickly. Um, my view always is that if an employer is looking at your CV for 30 seconds, a standard template, they know where to find the information they're looking for, right? Yeah. Um, so whatever format you use, you just need to make sure it's appropriate for the, the company and you want to stand out. If it's the kind of role where being creative is really important, then you want to show your creativity and having a creative CV is one way. Um, other people put links to... Um, campaigns they've run this kind of thing so there are other ways of sort of showing that you could have a um, a cv where you've got you know links to different campaigns that you've run so mm. that when the company receives your application your cv they can actually just click on links and see videos okay. you've made or different yeah. campaigns that you've run or mock-ups of them um, and that's another way of highlighting your creativity uh, supposing i'm applying for uh, a social media or events company uh, and I write, uh, and I write uh, I something. Let's say I ran an event, uh, like I was part of the of running one TEDx in my college, and in that I write uh, skills learn. Now in that, uh, what if um, I say, uh, um, let's say, what skill can I talk about? Or how to run the event? And I give real life examples of how, like just in a line, that how something went wrong and I fixed it. Okay, so I'd that would probably be at the interview stage, I think. Okay, so that you should, don't mention I think, okay. well, it's going to be hard. But, but sometimes in an online ap application, um, the company might ask for a sort of example of different types of skills. So they might say, you know, it's very important to us that you can manage projects effectively. Can you give us an example of a time when? And then you go into your star model um, where you give an example and you talk about it. Um, and reflect on it so okay yeah um, that makes sense yeah i think in a cv it's quite hard to do that and a cover letter as well because there just isn't that much space let's say it starts off with just name uh other details mm -hmm. like address and number and stuff that yeah. has to be there right yep so your contact information it's very brief in the uk uh we don't need date of birth we don't need photo um and then yeah usually it's education next and again, quite brief, really employers are just trying to see that you have the academic credentials that they're looking for. So usually it's your yeah. high school results and maybe so your university. Yeah, okay. Well, it depends. I mean, often in the UK, we'll ask for results when you're 16 um, because we can give up maths and English when we're 16 in the UK. So they, they oh, need okay. to ask <laughs> that then. Um, but then, yeah, 
usually you might show school. I guess that's becoming less important now as you're doing a master's course. So you might just show the undergraduate degree result, your master's course, and then it's into the work experience. And this is kind of the meaty section. You specify your marks? Um, again, if they're good. Uh, yeah, do. like two to one. Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously you're giving the employers what they're looking for. So if, if their criteria is two, one and above, which for most companies it is, then it's good if they can easily find that information. Uh, okay, yeah, so if marks are good, then specify them. If, you, if not, yeah. then... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you leave them out, then often an employer will be a bit like, why haven't they told me what their marks are? So mm. generally you would write the marks. Um, and I guess if you did really well, for instance, on the dissertation for your undergrad degree, you might want to really highlight that as well. Um, so yeah, so you kind of have your academics, but usually we just listing modules, any academic scholarships would go in this section as well. And then it goes on to work experience, then it's extracurricular activities, and then it's usually additional skills, so languages, any uh, technical skills, MATLAB, SPSS, those kind of things, something that you might use in the company. So after the marks, it just comes your experience? And then you can just say, like, um, other awards and recognition, extracurricular activities. Exactly. Uh, okay, so it goes. Yeah, and um, this, uh, do you have an example of a CV, like, in your office or something? Like, most yeah. perfect CV? Yeah, so we have different types of CVs, depending on the role you're applying for. So we have a marketing CV, a consulting CV. Please, a uh, if you CV. can send it to me, I'll just attach it in down so other people can also see it as well. Okay. So uh, in terms of uh, like recruit recruitment, uh, like I have students from Bath also got recruited to like, uh, P, like um, I know PwC and Amazon and stuff like that. So uh, anyone from like the MSc program, like which you've seen, the most impressive place that they've gotten into. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's, you know, like one place is more impressive than another. So oh, obviously, no. you know, big companies are often sought after because I guess people are aware of the training and their global yeah. reach um, and the kind of projects you can work on. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always satisfying when a student gets what they want. And that does vary. You know, it, it can be a small company. If that's what's right for the student at that time, then that's great, too. So I think it's all about you achieving your goals, right? So, oh, yeah. But um, I guess Dyson is a company we work with closely because they're based just outside Bath. Um, and for international students looking for marketing jobs, there aren't so many that sponsor work permits, and Dyson is one of them. And I think every year they're taking one or two of our MSc cohort, which is great because the cohort's pretty small. So, yeah, yeah it's really good to see that our students have what they're looking for. They have that global sort of mindset, that go-getting kind of I can do it attitude, plus, you know, an excellent marketing degree. And, um, okay, uh, one more question I had. Now, what if uh, in your marketing degree you got a 69.40? Mm. Uh, does it get rounded off? I don't know. The rules do change about this. So I think yeah, there I've is, heard of different people. Yeah, so I think there are some rules depending on if you, um, the taught part, so semester one and semester two result, and then the dissertation mark. And I'm not 100% sure how that works. But obviously, that would be a kind of sad situation if you're getting 69.4. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, I know lots of students worry about getting a distinction or a merit. Um, I'd say employers aren't so uh, aware of the differences between grades. 
I think certainly employers would know that 69.4% is an amazing grade, whether that was a merit or a distinction. So again, it's you know how you're presenting it. So if I were writing an application and let's say I got 69.4%, but that wasn't a distinction, I think I would just say something like I graduated, you know, with 69.4% from the top ranked marketing course in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's not. <laughs> And okay, even if you're like at fifty nine point sixty, then also will they round it off to two to one? Yeah, again, I'm not hundred percent what sure. the rules okay. are, yeah. so <laughs> check your rules and regulations. Okay. Uh, now I want to just ask you. This is more. Uh, it's just uh, I just want to get to know you more better in a personal way. So I'm sure like uh, like traveling to so many countries, different countries, and reaching this point, there were a lot of struggles throughout the way. Like what what happened? Like what were kind of some of those things that you had to overcome? I think it's always hard when you arrive in a new country and you have to try and understand how things work there, right? So you did that I, like ten times. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, it's one of the things I enjoy the most is kind of understanding how things work in other countries. But it can be frustrating. And in fact, the most ironic thing was when we moved back to the UK after living abroad for fourteen years, setting up a bank account here was incredibly difficult because we had no record of being here. So we didn't have a TV license. All the things they used to check your credit worthiness or whatever, we just didn't exist. We weren't on any any systems for the UK, even though we had a British nationality. And that was a really interesting experience because, you know, what could we do? We're British, you know, OK, we haven't lived here for a long time, but trying to reintegrate to our yeah. home country was probably one of the more challenging times. <laughs> That's ironic. Yeah, really. So, um, so yeah, I think always the sort of visa application process is tiring and, you know, difficult. Um, but, but yeah, I think if you're going to have a sort of international life, then you have to want to experience those differences. And with that comes, you know, different countries work differently and you have yeah. to understand that. And I do, that's also when you get to, you know, find those helpful people who make a difference and you know that's also really nice to know that in every country there are people who go above and beyond to make things work out for you and we definitely had that wherever we lived so um so yeah it's definitely challenging um but I think so rewarding so and I think the other thing is nice is that um when you live abroad and it's not your home country you know if you don't like something then you know, and you don't want to live in that environment anymore, you don't need to. You can leave. Um, I think often we were with people, other international expats, who would just complain all the time that, you know, oh, in this country it doesn't work like their home country. And I'm like, you don't need to be here. You know, you can, it's your choice to be here and it's a privilege to be living abroad and you have to adapt. It shouldn't be that you expect the country to adapt to your norms, right? Yeah, obviously. So yeah, sometimes they were the most frustrating people actually, the other Brits who were living abroad. But, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Um okay, if your life was a movie, what would be the turning point? Like oh. always in a movie there's this point where everything is low and then yeah. it goes high. Yeah, I don't know, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know if it was a low and then it changed, but I guess a turning point for me, certainly in terms of my career, was having children. Mm. I think before then, you know, my husband and I could decide, oh, where are we gonna live next? And we would just think about ourselves. Um, and then suddenly you have children and it becomes a bit more complex um, and you realise, yeah, y you can't carry on in the same way yeah. and you're both going to have to adapt. How you're old are they? 
So now they've just had their birthdays, 19 and 21. Okay. Yeah. One is, I'm almost my age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So they're going through what you're going through now. So I've got a daughter who's doing an internship in India at the moment. Oh, where? In Delhi. Wow. Um, and my son has just finished a year abroad in Australia and is in Canada doing an internship there. So How old is he? He's 21. He's 21. Yeah. Oh, he must be loving Canada. Yeah, yeah, I think so. He's just only been there two weeks, so oh, he's still went. finding his yeah. way. So, so, yeah, so I think, yeah, it's always something I'm sort of mindful of, you know, with career, how, you know, your priorities will change over time. So, you know, it's really important that you set out to be ambitious, think about what you want to achieve as a fresh graduate, but over time that will change and other things will have bigger yeah. priorities over time. So... It's really interesting, you know. Okay, and my, the last round is usually, uh, it's just the ending now. It's just, I'll just ask some few rapid-fire questions, which everyone just wants to know the answer to. Uh, when is your birthday? It's in April. April, okay. Um, oh, favorite movie? Love Actually. Oh, okay, nice. Um, favorite TV show? I don't know if I have a favorite TV show, but I'll say Friends, because yeah. I guess I sort of, <laughs> I didn't really grow up with it, but, well, it was, yeah. Something I've watched over the years. Oh, yeah. Favorite food? Sushi. Ah, nice. Um, favorite or most recommended book? Yeah, I think it is Kate Atkinson, Life After Life. Hmm. Interesting. I should check that one out. Yeah. Uh, who, like, favorite or, like, the person who's influenced you the most? Like, a role model kind of person. Oh, that's hard. Um, it's a bit of a corny answer, but I'd say my mum is amazing. <laughs> Um, she brought me up by myself, by herself. My mom, oh, wow. my dad died when I was three months old. I'm sorry. Um, and she kind of definitely went above and beyond what's expected um, and was always super empowering and, you know, wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, sure and very proud. selfless and, yeah, she's just an amazing, amazing person. That's great. I'm sure she's proud. Uh, and your favorite color? I don't know if that varies. Pink? I don't know. Pink. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time, Caroline. I'm sure you're in a hurry now. So I will, I'm just going to log off and see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. Bye now.